This is Naima Novetsky. In our last class, we introduced Baikra chapter 23, known as Parashat HaMoadim, the parasha which deals with the various festivals. We scanned the different descriptions of the holiday cycle throughout Tanakh and delved into the structure of the chapter itself. As we mentioned last class, the chapter easily divides in two, with the first half bringing us from Pesach to Shavuot and the second half dealing with the holidays of the seventh month, Tishrei. Today we'll begin to look at the verses inside, studying together the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 22. We'll focus most of our attention on the second half of these verses, those that discuss the offerings of the Omer and of the two loaves connected to Pesach and Shavuot, respectively. As we spoke about last class, the chapter opens with a general introduction. Ba'idaber Hashem and Moshe Limor, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Daber al-Bnei Yisrael alehem, Speak to the children of Israel and tell them, The set feasts of Hashem, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my set feasts. The verse refers to the various festivals in two ways, as both a Moed and a Mikra Kodesh. The two terms have been understood similarly, with Moed referring to a set designated time with the added connotation of a meeting between man and God and the words Mikra Kodesh referring to a day which is proclaimed as secret or to a secret assembly specifically. Taken together, a festival is a sacred day designated for the entire nation to gather together and connect to God. Verse 3 speaks of the first sacred day, Shabbat. Sheshet yamim te'asem lacha uvayom hashvi'i Shabbat Shabbaton Mikra Kodesh kom lacha lo ta'asu Shabbat hilashem b'chom Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Shabbat of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no kind of work. It is a Shabbat to Hashem in all your dwellings. Almost every time that Shabbat is mentioned in Torah, we are told not only that the seventh day of the week is one in which we must refrain from work, but also that the six prior days are work days. The point of Shabbat is not merely to commemorate that Hashem rested on the seventh day, but even more so to recognize that He created on the first six. Verse 4 then repeats the introduction, moving from the weekly Shabbat into the various annual holidays. These are the set feasts of Hashem, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their appointed season. The festivals are listed in chronological order, starting with Pesach and Chag Hamatzot, which fall in the first Hebrew month, Nisan. We'll talk about these very briefly. Verse 5. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, in the evening, is Hashem's Passover. On the 15th day of the month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to Hashem. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no regular work. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to Hashem seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no regular work. Though we tend to call the entire seven-day holiday Pesach, Tanakh actually distinguishes between two different celebrations, Pesach and Chag HaMatzot. Pesach is a one-day celebration in which the Paschal sacrifice is offered in commemoration of the original Pesach slaughtered in Egypt and our salvation from the plague of firstborns. 
It takes place on the 14th of Nisan and extends to the night of the 15th. Chag HaMatzot, in contrast, is the seven-day holiday which begins on the 15th at night and whose essence is the abstention from chametz and the eating of matzah as a reminder of the process of our redemption from Egypt. The next few verses speak of the Omer offering, which will open the main topic of our class today. According to Chazal, this offering is brought on the 16th of Nisan, the day after the first Yom Tov of Chag HaMatzot. Verse 9. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to the children of Israel and tell them, When you have come into the land which I am to give you, and you shall reap its harvest, then you shall bring the Omer of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. The meaning of the word Omer is debated. It has been explained as either a certain measure of grain or a sheaf. We are now told what to do with that sheaf. And he shall wave the sheaf before Hashem to be accepted for you. On the next day after the Shabbat, the priest shall wave it. This waving of the sheaf gives the day on which the offering was brought a special name, Yom Hanafat HaOmer, or in short, Yom Hanif. The offering is accompanied by an Ola and its Mincha. Verse 12. On the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb without blemish, a year old, for a burnt offering to Hashem. The meal offering with it shall be two-tenths part of an ephah of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire to Hashem for a pleasant aroma and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, the fourth part of a hymn. Finally, verse 14 teaches that the bringing of the Omer permits one to eat from the grains of the new harvest. You shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor fresh grain until this same day, until you have brought the offering before your God. This is a statute forever throughout your generations. As is often the case, the verses do not explain what is the purpose of this offering. It's likely, though, that it is similar to other first fruit types of offerings. The Torah mandates that before partaking of our crop, we thank Hashem in recognition that all stems from Him. Many of the other details of the offering are also not clear from the verses we just read. First, they do not specify what exactly is to be brought, saying only that we must bring Rishit Kitzirchem, the first of your harvest. Chazal teach that the offering is brought from the barley harvest. This, to some extent, is the obvious candidate, since the barley harvest precedes the wheat harvest and is therefore reshit kiterchem, the first of your harvest. In addition, it is barley, not wheat, which is being harvested in the month of Nisan. The verse is also somewhat ambiguous regarding who is to bring the offering. Is it a command on every individual that he bring from the first of his harvest? as one does with the first of one fruit, with Bikurim? Or is this a national offering? Chazal determined that it is a national offering and that just one offering is brought for the entire people. This might be gleaned from the fact that the verse specifies to bring the offering on a certain day and not simply whenever one's harvest is ready. Third, the date given for the offering is very unclear. The verse specifies that we should bring it Mimaharat HaShabbat. But what does this mean? 
the day after which Shabbat? Does the phrase allude to a day previously mentioned, as the definite article, the Hei Hayidia, might imply? If so, does it refer to the weekly Shabbat described at the beginning of the chapter? But if it does, which of the many Shabbats of the year would it be? Alternatively, if it refers to the immediately preceding holidays of Pesach and Chag HaMatzot, why use the confusing term Shabbat? Finally, why doesn't the Torah simply give a lunar date for the sacrifice? As we'll read in verse 15, the 50-day countdown to Shavuot starts with this day, so one would think that it was important to clarify it. These issues have been the source of fiery debate between many sects of Judaism and assorted commentators from time immemorial. So let's take a few minutes to explore the various sides of the issue and how the verse has been understood. Different groups of sectarians, including the Samaritans, Karaites, and Dead Sea sects, all understand the word Shabbat to refer to Saturday and date the Omer sacrifice to the following day, to Sunday. They disagree, however, regarding when the Shabbat falls out. According to the Samaritans, the verse is referring to the first Shabbat that falls within the holiday of Chag Kamatzot. And as such, the next day's bringing of the Omer can fall anywhere between the 16th and 22nd of Nisan, depending on the year. The date of Shavuot, being dependent on the Omer offering, is similarly not fixed, though it always falls out on the same day of the week, on a Sunday. This factor could readily explain why Shavuot, unlike other holidays, does not have a calendric date in the Torah, because it's not always the same. This flexible dating, though, also serves to sever the direct connection between Shavuot and the giving of the Torah. But since neither the Karaites nor the Samaritans hold that Matan Torah was on the 6th of Sivan regardless, they had no reason to try and connect Shavuot to that day. The Quran or Dead Sea sect disagrees and assumes that the verse is referring to the first Shabbat after the Chag. Due to the unique 364-day calendar of the Dead Sea sect, which is evenly divisible by seven, the Omer offering was always brought not only on a set day of the week, but also on a set date of the month, the 26th of Nisan. As such, according to the Qumran calendar, Shavuot always falls on the 15th of Sivan. The obvious advantage of these sects' reading of the verse is that it is able to sustain the simple meaning of the word Shabbat as referring to the seventh day of the week, an understanding upheld in many places in which the word is used in Tanakh. This, though, is also one of the position's disadvantages, because if the verse refers to the seventh day of the week, as we said before, how did the Torah expect anyone to know from the verses to which Shabbat is referred? And proof of the lack of clarity, of course, is the fact that the sectarians themselves are not in agreement on this point. A second disadvantage of this position is that the Torah's normal mode of marking time is to date events by either the lunar calendar or the agricultural season and not by the day of the week in which they fall. Moreover, this approach does not adequately explain what is particularly, what is particularly significant about a Sunday that Hashem would decide that the Omer offering, and thus Shavuot, need to fall out on that day of the week specifically. Perhaps due to these objections, as is well known, rabbinic interpretation maintains that Shabbat in our verses does not refer to the seventh day of the week, but rather, that it is an alternative designation for the first day of Chag HaMatzot. As such, they set the 16th of Nisan as a fixed lunar date for the Omer sacrifice. The obvious question, of course, is, how does this fit with the simple sense of the text? Why does the Torah use the word Shabbat 
if it means Yom Tov. Even as a response, the many other holidays are called the Shabbaton. As we see in our chapter itself, Rosh Hashanah, Yom HaKippurim, and Sukkot are all referred to in this manner. From these, one can learn that the word Shabbaton, and hence Shabbat, is not limited in meaning to a specific day of the week, but that it can refer to any Yom Tov. Ramban instead proposes that the word Shabbat means week, as it is understood in the rest of our chapter, when, for example, we are told to count seven Shabbatot until Shavuot. He suggests that the bringing of the Omer begins the first week of counting, and that it is thus offered on the morrow of the week ending on the 15th. This reading, though, is not so simple. Professor Itamar Kislev, in an article in the journal Megadim, gives an, gives an alternative explanation for why the Torah would refer to the 16th of Nisan as Mimacharat HaShabbat rather than Mimacharat HaMoed or the like. He attempts not only to explain the choice of word Shabbat, but in so doing to also reveal a deeper meaning behind the offering. Professor Kislev points out that the verb Shabbat always means to stop. And so perhaps when the verse refers to the day after Shabbat, this means the day after the stopping or cessation. He suggests that the Torah is referring to the day after the manna ceased to fall, which we know from Sefer Yahushua was on the 15th of Nisan. At first, this sounds odd. Why would the Torah refer to the 15th of Nisan in this manner specifically? And why here? What is the connection between the cessation of the manna and the Omer offering? Professor Kislev suggests that the entire ritual of the Omer offering might come, at least in part, to commemorate both the miracle of the manna and its cessation, as this marked the transition from supernatural providence to natural living. Why was this so important to commemorate? Professor Kislev answers that throughout the 40 years in the desert, the manna served as a constant reminder, a constant reminder of Hashem's providence. Its absence on Shabbat and the provision of a double portion the day before weakly reinforced the nation's dependence on God. Upon entry to the land and the transition to natural providence with the cessation of the manna, the likelihood grew that the nation would forget its reliance on God. Thus, at the moment of the first harvest, when man is most likely to attribute his success to himself, the Torah commands to bring the Omer offering and remember the lessons of the manna. According to Professor Kislev, though, we would have thought that the Omer should have been brought not on the morrow of the cessation, but on that day itself. Professor Kislev answers that the offering is pushed off only due to practical concerns. Since the 15th is the first Yom Tov of Chag HaMatzot, any commemoration of the manna on that day would be obscured. Let's now move to the second half of our unit, discussion of the counting that leads up to the sacrifices of the two loaves on Shavuot. Verse 15. You shall count from the next day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be counted. Even to the next day after the seventh Sabbath, you shall count you shall count fifty days, and you shall offer a new meal offering to Hashem. Despite the fact that our verses introduce the unit that speaks of the holiday of Shavuot, it does not open with a new introductory formula, and Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, because really our verse does not begin a new unit at all. 
It is in fact intrinsically connected to the discussion of the Umrah offering that came before. This is evident even in the very content of our verses, which mandate that we count 50 days from the Omer offering to the offering of the two loaves, clearly joining them in one long process. The verses say that we should count complete weeks. Chazal learned from this that each day we count at night, when the halachic day begins, rather than in the morning, thereby ensuring that the total count includes 49 complete days. In addition, they learn from the fact that the verse mentions both seven weeks and 50 days that we must include both days and weeks in our counting. So for example, one says today is the 10th day, which is one week and three days to the Omer. Verse 17. You shall bring out of your habitations two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths part of an ephah of fine flour. They shall be baked with yeast for first, for first fruits to Hashem. This verse specifies that the mincha brought is two loaves of leavened bread. This is somewhat unique as normally we don't bring leavened bread as an offering. It is only this offering and the korban todah, the thanksgiving offering, which have leavening. The next verse speaks of the sacrifices which are to accompany the offering. They kravtem al shivat kvasim tmimim b'nei shana, ufar ben bakar echad ve'ilim shnaim. You shall present with the bread seven lambs without blemish a year old, one young bull, and two rams. They should be a burnt offering to Hashem with their meal offering and their drink offerings. You shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old for a sacrifice of peace offerings. Together with the mincha, one is to bring seven lambs, a bull and two rams as an olah, a goat as a sin offering, and two lambs as a peace offering. Quite a few additional sacrifices. And nonetheless, it is the two loaves offering which takes center stage, for these are what is unique to the day and represent the thanksgiving for the crops given to us. Verse 20. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before Hashem with the two lambs. They shall be holy to Hashem for the priest. Verse 21 moves from discussion of the sacrifices to the festival itself. You shall make proclamation on the same day. There shall be a holy convocation to you. You shall do no regular work. This is a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. The verse shares nothing new about Shavuot itself, besides the fact that work is prohibited. The unit then ends with a tangential statement about gifts to the poor. These gifts, pe'ah, setting aside a corner of one's field, and leket, leaving any forgotten sheaves for the poor, have already been discussed in chapter 19. They appear here again in the context of the harvest season, when all are busy re reaping their fields, to remind us that in this time of joy for ourselves, we cannot forget those less fortunate and must set aside part of that harvest for the poor as well. This unit regarding Sfirat Omer, the counting from the Omer offering to the two loaves offering, raises several questions. First, 
What is the nature of the counting commanded in the verses? Is Hashem obligating one to count out loud or in one head, or is he obligating us to count in our heads? Other mitzvot of counting, such as the countdown during a woman's seven clean days after menstruation, do not require that the woman verbally enumerate each day, saying out loud, today is day one, etc. So it's not clear from our verses whether a mental or an oral counting is implied. Second, the verse states, Usfartem lachem, and you shall count for you. Who is lachem? The individual or the court? As a point of comparison, one might look to the counting of the years of the Jubilee cycle. These are not counted by individuals, but only by Beitin. Is Firata Omer similar or different, and why? Third, why are we mandated to count at all? Is there inherent worth in the counting, or is it simply a means to an end, that we know by the end that 49 days have passed and that Shavuot has arrived? But if the latter, why could the Torah not have more simply set a lunar date for the holiday? Finally, what is the connection between both the holidays of Pesach and Shavuot and the two sacrifices, the Omer offering and the Mincha of the two loaves? Tanakh obviously attempts to connect the two, but why? We'll start by looking at the more fundamental questions regarding the purpose of the mitzvah of the counting and the connections drawn between the two holidays and see how the answers to these questions might affect the more specific details of the counting itself. A first approach views the mitzvah as being utilitarian in nature. The Baal Hatuim, Rav Yaakov Ben Asher, brings an opinion of those who say that the reason for the counting is the fact that during the, se- during the harvest season, when the Omer counting is taking place, the people are busy working in the fields and are not in their homes. They therefore might not be reached by the messengers of the courts to be informed when the new month begins. In other words, had the Torah set a lunar date, and relied on the sighting of the moon and sending of messengers to announce the new moon, it's possible that a significant number of people would never have greeted and heard from those messengers, as they would not be in their homes. Hashem therefore commanded to count the days so as to ensure that all knew when the holiday fell out. According to this approach, there is no intrinsic significance to the counting. It is a purely practical way of knowing the date. This reading of the verse leads to the conclusion that the counting falls on each individual, for if Beitin were to count, it would defeat the purpose. In addition, as there is no inherent significance in the actual counting, it might further suggest that the counting can take place in one's head and not out loud. Nahama Leibowitz questions this position, wondering whether mitzvot are ever instituted for purely practical purposes. Is it really possible that this mitzvah is simply supposed to take the place of pocket calendars? The question is a good one, and one we have asked before. But as we noted, this would not be the first mitzvah to be explained in such a manner. The Rambam, for example, suggests that the entire reason for the incense in the Mishkan was so that it acts as a deodorizer against the smell of burning animals. If so, our mitzvah too might be purely practical in nature. Nonetheless, I think many feel Nechama Leibowitz's discomfort with such a reading of the mitzvah, and as such, most sources suggest a more fundamental reason for the counting. Sforno, for example, explains that the counting is supposed to act as a prayer of sorts. The Omer offering ushered in harvest season. Through the sacrifices, we thank God for the barley harvest that takes place in the Aviv, but simultaneously pray that the wheat harvest be successful as well. The seven weeks of counting are the crucial ones in determining the outcome of this harvest, so daily we count as a reminder and symbol of prayer. 
When Shavuot, Chakakatsir, the holiday of weeping, comes, we bring the offering of two loaves as a final thanksgiving. Sforno's reading fits with the text's emphasis on the agricultural components of the festivals and its obvious connecting of the two offerings. I would probably suggest that the counting need be done by each individual out loud, for that alone is what makes it into a prayer. Others suggest that the counting is related not to the agricultural components of the day, but the historical event that Shavuot commemorates, the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Rav Yosef Bachor thus writes, We are commanded to count in honor of the Torah. He compares the mitzvah to a groom counting down to his wedding day. So too, when Pesach arrives, when we commemorate the exodus from Egypt, we begin the countdown to the giving of the Torah, which took place 50 days later. Each day, we convey our eager anticipation, coming one day closer to the momentous event. According to this position too then, there is inherent worth in every individual's counting, for it is the counting which is our expression of our longing to receive the Torah. The Torah's connection of the two holidays, Pesach and Shavuot, via counting, might convey another idea as well. When we left Egypt, we left our physical enslavement behind, but we had not yet reached the end of the journey. Hashem freed us with a higher goal than pure physical emancipation. We were meant to leave Egypt so as to worship Hashem and become His people. Only on Shavuot, with the receiving of the Torah, was the people's ultimate redemption reached, as they turned from being slaves to Paro to becoming Avdei Hashem, servants of God. In evaluating this position, though, it's important to note that nowhere in our chapter does it mention that Shavuot is Chag Matan Torah. And in fact, this connection is not made anywhere in Torah at all. Perhaps just as surprisingly, the exact date of Matan Torah is not found in the Torah either. Shmot chapter 19, the chapter which speaks of Revelation, simply tells us that the nation arrived at Sinai in the third month. As the verse includes the unusual language, Bayom Hazeb Ba'um in Bar Sinai, on this day they arrived in Sinai, Rashi states that they arrived on Rosh Chodesh, the first of the month. But this isn't totally explicit in the verse. We further note that before Revelation, there were three days of preparation and that Moshe ascended and descended the mountain multiple times. But we don't know how long each ascent took, nor how many days elapsed between arrival and any future events. As such, we do not really have enough information to pinpoint the date of Revelation exactly. The Mechelta, using the information garnered from the verses, suggests that it took place on either the 6th or 7th day of Sivan. But the Torah itself, for some reason, prefers not to state the date explicitly. In addition to this lack of date, it's interesting to note that nowhere in Torah are we, a to- are we told to do anything, let alone celebrate a festival, to as- so as to remember or mark the event of Matan Torah. We have tons of mitzvot connected to the Exodus. In addition to Pesach itself, the mitzvot of caring for the unfortunate, redemption of firstborns, and Shabbat have all been connected to the event of leaving Egypt. For some reason, though, no similar phenomenon is found with regards to Matan Torah. We must then ask, why did, why did the Torah prefer to both obscure the date of Matan Torah and to leave the event uncommemorated? An answer might be gleaned from Mashi's comments on the opening of Shemot 19. Picking up on the phrase we mentioned earlier, that the nation arrived by Yom Hazeh, Rashi questions, it ought not to write by Yom Hazeh on this day, but by Yom Hahu on that day. What then is the meaning of the words on this day? 
He answers, For the words of Torah should always be new to you, as if they were given today. Perhaps then, the reason that no date is given for Matan Torah is because we are supposed to act as if every day is Matan Torah. Revelation is a constant. Observance of the Torah is meant to be perpetually part of our lives. No one mitzvah can commemorate the giving of the Torah, for every single mitzvah commemorates the giving of the Torah. At the same time, Chazal apparently felt a need for the nation to nonetheless take one day in which to actively commemorate Matan Torah. For after all, most of us are not yet at the level where we can say that we feel a part of revelation and the giving of the Torah daily. And so the connection between Shavuot and Matan Torah was drawn. And once it was, the count from the Omer offering to the two loaves offering became simultaneously an eager countdown until Matan Torah. In Yertar Shep, in our next class, we'll turn to the second half of the chapter and its discussion of the holidays 